Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good. I 
Oh. 
I'm David Minshew, and I'm uh, here to speak on behalf of the Gideon Ministry. And the, the purpose of the Gideon Ministry is to place Bibles uh, where people can find them, like in the video, in uh, drawers, in motel rooms, and pass them out at schools when we can. And uh, we put them in jails and uh, juvenile detention centers, just wherever we can. And the reason we do that is we know that you can come to know God uh, through His Word, just by reading His Word, just between you and the Bible. And that, that's the purpose of the, the ministry. Several years ago, uh, I was working uh, in some dense woods close to Lake Livingston, and uh, even though there wasn't any cell phone signal, I had uh, a trusty flip phone with me in my pocket, and uh, just in case I, I needed it, I guess, and uh, didn't have any signal, but at, at that time in my life, I was uh, facing some trials and tribulations and and uh, I was letting worry take over I was worried about things at church and at home and I was fighting depression and out in the middle of the woods that phone rang and I looked and I answered it and it was my daughter and she said uh, daddy I'm here at Texas A&M and I just uh, saw Gideon passing out Bibles and I thought about you and just thought I'd call you and tell you that I loved you so I, I knew that that message had come from God, and I knew that God had everything un under control. Uh, there are several men in the church that are members of the Gideons. If, if, if you are a Gideon, would you stand up? All right. Uh, at, at the end of the service, Gideon will be holding the Bible, and to buy these Bibles that we give away, we, we take up a collection. And the way we take up the collection, we'll stand at the door at the end of the service and you can put your money in the Bible. Thank you, David. Uh, if you don't know, David is one of our pastors. And uh, the Gideons, you know, one of the things we've kind of, the church, the, the, the local gathering of believers is, is, uh, is intended to be a disciple-making thing. We come together, we get in the Word together, we study, and then we send you out. All of us go out there. We go out there to minister. And, uh, and the, the cool thing about living in our culture, and it's, it's actually all across the world, is that God has designed people with visions, that, and you can attach yourself to those, and, and God will use you in powerful ways. Where many of us are together, uh, you know, it's, it's a powerful thing. And the Word of God is the plumb line of truth. And Satan has an active agenda to move us away from that. Um, I am surprised every year uh, when I go, there's a, they put on a pastor's luncheon, and I've actually shared some of the testimonies with you, and they, they, they share testimonies of people who are at the end of, of their rope, and they will grab the scriptures, and God will speak to them through it. My cynical nature says that you always need a preacher. Well, you know what? That's not true. you got the word of God, and it, it is effective, just like scripture promises it will be. And the Gideons uh, is a ministry that that's what they do. They specifically just put Bibles in people's hands. And uh, um, and so what we do, as David had mentioned, is once a year we take up a collection at the end of the service uh, in order to buy Bibles. That's that's what this is. All uh, the those men who are in the Gideons, they take care of all the administrative costs. They volunteer their time. Every penny that you give goes towards Scripture, and uh, we're excited to participate with them in that. It's a it's a privilege to be a part of a church that's so mission minded. 
Uh, and we have so many vast different ways in which that mission is accomplished. The Pregnancy Help Center uh, meets with men and women in crisis, in family crisis, and, and ministers to their spiritual needs as well as their familiar needs. Uh, we are involved with the Mosaic Center, and that helps women who are in crisis there trying to, trying to find a way to make ends meet. And through that, they are discipled into a personal relationship with Christ. The new men's ministry that's like the Women's Mosaic uh, Center uh, is meeting men in crisis and training them to take a job while discipling them in spiritual things. We, got, we are involved financially as a church with MAF uh, that, that work all over the world, and they fly people into difficult regions to reach, and they do it with those that are saved and unsaved for the purpose of sharing the gospel. And that's just a few. Uh, we are involved with Love and Care that has orphanages in Madagascar, in India, and they're building them right now in Germany. And so we, par we are privileged to participate with them. And while they're doing all that, we do discipleship here in Angelina County. We, and that's done through you. You go out there. My job is to encourage you and spur you on. Then you go out there and you tell people about Jesus and you love on them. And then sometimes they come in here and we get to disciple them. It, it is a privilege. So be praying for the Gideons. Um, I'm very excited because uh, this year we're doubling down on our missions emphasis. And uh, on the 24th of, of February, we're having a mission Sunday. And uh, that is going to consist of we're going to have a missionary speaker come in on that Sunday morning. And then in the entryway, you're going to have a lot of uh, tables of local missions that we support and also some international missions that are f actually flying in for this. And we're going to take the 11 o'clock hour and give you a chance to meander around. And uh, we invite the Gideons, Gary, to come and put a table up because uh, we want you involved in missions. We want you involved in serving the Lord. That is our task, and then we go home. And uh, so I appreciate that. That video uh, is touching to me because I've heard so many of the testimonies of these men and women who are at the who are on the edge of suicide. That's the fun, that, uh, funny, that's the ironic part about every testimony that the Gideons have. Invariably, the person's about to kill themselves, they end up in a hotel where they're gonna do it and they open the scriptures and meet Jesus. It is, the, it is an incredible. And if you wanna know whether it's effective, just watch a movie. They'll invariably make fun of a Gideon Bible in a hotel. Uh, that tells you how effective this ministry has been and how widespread, and it's all over the world. So. Uh, David, thank you. Our Gideons will, uh, I, I think I think we have about seven men who are involved with them. They'll be at the doors, and uh, if you would like to participate with them financially, you can do that, and the money you give will go towards that. Uh, we also have ministry going on here at Carpenter's Way, and Alicia Bonin, who oversees our children's discipleship, is going to come up and make a couple announcements. Give Alicia a really, really big hand. <laughs> Take a bow. There it is. Ladies and gentlemen, Alicia Bonin. Well, I love being so warmly welcomed. That's awesome. Um, speaking of discipleship opportunities, I do want to take a minute uh, just to share with you those opportunities that we have uh, for student ministry and children's ministry. So if you'll take your um, worship guide with me, it's top center. Is There's a student ministry meeting today after Bible study in the student center for those students that are signed up to go to the Hot Hearts Conference, which is a student conference. It's going to date me that Jeff and I actually went 32 years ago to the very first Hot Hearts Conference in Beaumont, and it is still going strong today. And so this is actually our sixth road trip that we've taken our Carpenter's Way students. So it's not too, too late if you still wanna sign up. I see there's seven spots left, and it's for sixth through 12th graders. And again, that meeting is uh, right after Bible study in the Student Center to finalize paperwork, payments, and so forth. 
Um, now, if you look your way down, the worship guide right in the center, stars on our red carpet, talking about discipleship to our littlest little sheep of our flock is we have our yearly appreciation and training for those that volunteer in the nursery. So if, or if you're currently on the list for Sunday mornings during this hour or Wednesday nights, then this meeting is for you. Uh, if you're interested in joining our volunteer team, uh, we are really in a need of volunteers, especially on Wednesday nights. And Casey, my, uh, my coordinator for that, she's got a wonderful rotation that you would serve once every five or six weeks in the nursery. So that's something to consider. And join us next week. Our meeting's in the Connection Center. So we'd love to treat you and just review a few things. Uh, we're also, the very bottom picture at the bottom that you see is for preteens. I do a weekend getaway camp. It's called Priority One. And it's at Camp Bethany, which is in Louisiana. And that's for fourth through sixth graders. That's in February. So that info is here and sign up information is at our table in the lobby. So it's not too late if you're, if you're preteen still needs to sign up, you can do that. Um, flip to the, the side, right side, y'all I'm picking out summer dates to you, so you'll put it on your calendar. So we've got VBS that's coming up. Again, we're bringing their ministries in in June, the second week of June. Preteen camp, we get away for a week with our preteens, which is fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Uh, this year, we're adding something new to our summer program, and we're going to a children's camp, which is Camp His Way in Zavala, Texas with Dustin and Brittany Ellerman, and so those um, dates are there, July 1st through the 5th, and you see the sign-up information, uh, $50 deposits will be due, so we'll, all of that is here, and also check our Children's Ministry Facebook group, um, set your notifications for, for at least every week, because I post tons of stuff, pictures, you, want, you don't want to miss out, so the final thing, I feel like I'm just shooting a lot of information, y'all are so great and so patient. The last thing I want to share, in, and really the most important thing, uh, I've created this yellow, it's a prayer guide for our children and preschool ministry, and it has all of our Bible study leaders, uh, teen kid teachers, children's church, Mother's Day Out teachers, and, and their birthdays. And so if you would partner with me in praying for uh, our volunteers, our staff, I also have ministry events on here, like planning weeks, Easter, uh, Bible school, camp. I've got extras of these at our children's ministry table. I'm throwing stuff at them. Um, so just take one of these and tuck it in your Bible so that you can pray for us, for, um, for what the Lord would have for us, not only the leaders, but the students as well. So that's a lot. So make sure you, you put those notes in your calendar, and uh, we'd love for you to be able to participate. Pastor Mark, here we go. Let's give him a round of applause. We obviously are lacking affirmation at Carpenter's Way on the staff. So anyway, uh, um, it, it, we, we have these worship guides that four of you actually use. And, and the reason we write this stuff is so you don't have to remember everything she just said. It's all in there. And, and if you are new to Carpenter's Way, you are going to find that we are very busy. We're busy about discipling. And that is our, that is our focus. That's our emphasis. That's why we do what we do. Uh, Jesus told us to make disciples of all people, not just get people saved, but on top of that, teach them the truths of Scripture. So that's our emphasis. That's our focus. And, uh, and, and we want you involved, and we want to encourage you to be involved in ministry as well. So we're going to give you lots of opportunities in the coming months to see areas that you can serve. You're supposed to die tired, in case nobody told you that before. And I don't mean tired from soccer games and movies and going to Houston shopping. I mean tired from serving. You're supposed to die tired. Then you get to rest for the next 
two and a half trillion years and uh, with, with our Lord. So thanks, uh, thanks for taking those home. Thanks for being in prayer for these things. Um, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time for our offering. Um, our offering, as you know, supports all these ministries. So we encourage you to be consistent in your giving. Uh, Carpenter's Way, folks, if you're visiting with us, we ask you not to give. This is for those of us who attend here regularly. But uh, be consistent and faithful so we can continue to do these ministries. And thank you very much in advance. Uh, let's pray. Let's ask God to bless our time. Lord, there's a lot of stuff uh, going on in the world. Uh, I thank you for the Gideons, Father, that uh, that get out there and give your word out, that uh, have been committed for, for well over 100 years to the handing out of the scriptures. Uh, we pray you continue to bless them. Father, I thank you that you call us together on a weekly basis to learn about you, to talk about you, to disciple and encourage each other in your word. I thank you for what Alicia does with our children's ministry, what Jeff and Mark Dubos do with our student ministry, what we get to do in our adult ministry. Father, teach us the truths from your word about you and change our lives by your Holy Spirit from the inside out. Father, I thank you for this, the ability we have to gather again today. Thank you for those who are here, for those who are on the internet. We pray you bless those that uh, are giving this morning of their finances, that are willing to offer their time, their sacrifice and serve. Uh, Lord, it is only by our willingness that... Uh, that these things are done. So I, I pray that you would make our hearts willing to serve and be good stewards of our money, our time, and our availability. So we commit our, our the rest of our service to you, take our, our brains off of those busy things of life, and may we focus them on you. In Jesus' name. in you my God and then you give me rest you are my refuge and my safe place my strength is in your name and though I
And they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. There you are 
standing here in front of me. There you are. Words can't describe you. I fall down before you. There you are. There you are. In all of your glory, heavenly hosts, I sing your praise. There
to start by saying he's better than we realize. And uh, this morning's text is going to lay that out. And uh, I, just, I just love to see the kids go to their thing in the morning. Let's just to look at those kids. Just take a second and we pray. Let's, let's pray for those kids, okay? Lord Jesus, you love children. You love their parents. You love their grandparents. But you want these kids to know you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that Alicia and her staff this morning, as they, as they willingly uh, give up their right to sit in this room with their families and, and listen, uh, I pray you'd bless them for their faithfulness. May today be the day that one or two of those kids come to know you and that even more get to know you better. So, Father, teach us something about yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 39 says, and When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, that's talking about his circumcision at eight days and naming him, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There, the child, and that's a Greek phrase, a reference to an older child, not an infant, grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was upon him. Uh, as I listen to a lot of you and read your Facebook posts, I am reminded that it is hard, confusing, scary, uh, just downright terrorizing to raise your kids. Um, you know, I remember when our kids were young, they didn't, we didn't have cell phones. I remember we had a bag phone for a while, and then we had a big old honking thing that the kids couldn't take to school. But it, it's, it's hard to remember that, uh, let's see, so my son is 22, my daughter's 20. So even when they were in junior high, their cell phones were still that big, and then they turned to flipping, and, and uh, it's changed quite a bit. I remember when we bought my son a, a cell phone because of his health, we wanted him to disobey every rule of the local school system and call us if he needed us. And, uh, but it's scary now because we didn't have things like, uh, well, you know the apps. And it's, it's a scary thing. Try raising God. That's even scarier. I mean, you get a sense from the verses I just read you that they did what they knew to do, just like you, and tried to just raise him. I mean... They fulfilled the religious requirements of the law of circumcision. They named him when he was eight years old. They held him as Simeon came over, and we talked about this a lot at Christmas, as Simeon came over and prophesied over him. They watch as Anna runs over and says, this is the Savior we've been waiting for and proclaims the, the Messiah's birth. They protected and cared for Jesus by running to Egypt when the Lord told them to. Because if they didn't, he'd be killed with every other two-year-old or younger male Jewish child in Jerusalem. And when God said it was safe, they start to head back to Hebrew territory, only to be told mid-trip that they aren't going to go back to where they want to go back, that they have to go back to the small town of Nazareth in Galilee to raise him. And they did well. They did well. Mary and Joseph did well. Because it tells us in the verse I just read, in verse 40, that he grew up healthy and strong and he was filled with wisdom and God's favor was upon him. When you are raising a child, it feels so intense, uh, probably because you have a lack of sleep. Uh, and I, I want to say something about parenting because we all kind of kid each other. There's like a club that you graduate into at each stage. And uh, when your kids are finally gone and they have their own kids, 
Um, you are in a club now where your job is to scare every parent who's about to have a baby. Um, we say things like, you'll never sleep again, get your sleep. Um, and while those things may be true, the truth is you will survive it. Billions of people have in the past. You will do fine. And for the most part, your kids will turn out fine. I mean, some will turn out bad, but the rest of them will turn out just fine. <laughs> it's intense, and every day is intense. Every day, whether you think about it or not, you're worried that your spouse is going to screw them up. I know you don't think you will, but your spouse is going to, or your parents. Uh, all of us raise our kids in reaction to how we were raised. Uh, if you were raised legalistically, you have the ten tendency to have the pendulum swing the opposite way and uh, raise them too liberally, and then they will raise their way. I remember um, I used to tease our kids, and it used to drive Julie nuts. I know that shocks you, but um, we would be driving, uh, and, and in the northeast where we lived, we would travel in the New England states, and we would go down to Florida by way of Georgia, and, and, and we would stop in Savannah, and there's lots of churches in Ohio, and that's, that's the old country, you know, for America 200 years is old, and, and everything was built around the church. That's where the steeple comes from. If you don't know that, it was supposed to be the central place in town, the gathering place, the meeting place, so they'd, make the, they'd want the, the tip of the church to be the tallest place in town so everybody knew where to gather. Where are we meeting? Well, we're meeting at the church. Well, where's the church? Look for the steeple. So when you drive through West Virginia, you can't see much of the towns because they're in uh, mountain crevices and, 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 and it's just, they're just everywhere and small communities. And there's always a church in those communities, and as you drive by, from the highway, they look white and cross on top. And every time we, I mean literally every time we would drive by, I'd say, Zach, you think that church has drums? Because I remember when our last church, when we went from a non-drum church to a demon-possessed drum church, um, because that's what half the church thought. But I, I'd ask, and Julie'd say, Mark, stop. And I'd say, don't worry. By the time our kids are adults, they'll be thinking that hymns are the coolest thing ever. And uh, I, remember, I remember Zach finding out that there was this book of songs that could be used in church. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce it, Daddy, but it is awesome. And between that and a record player being better than a CD, he's still to this day kind of crazy. And, and, uh, but uh, it feels so intense. You're afraid you're going to mess your kid up. Uh, parenting any child is tiring, and their needs are overwhelming. And you battle with the, 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 that fine line of keeping them happy so you can take a nap or have a nice dinner with trying not to spoil them. The difficulty of parenting. Mary and Joseph had the same parenting issues that you have. The same ones. And, I, and we can't picture that. We can't wrap our minds around it. Only in the back of their minds, and I want to share with you from today's text that it's in the way in the back of their minds. In the back of their minds, they are fully aware that their kid is unique. That he's the chosen one from God, the anointed one, which means Messiah. They're aware of that, but as you try to ignore the fact that there are scary things every day for your kid, unless you're on Facebook that likes to remind you of the terrors of the day, they try to put it in the back of their mind so that they could live a normal life. And as I've already pointed out, they did a good job. And God blessed their efforts as he was healthy, growing in wisdom, and God blessed him. If we were to be honest this morning, I mean really honest, when we think of Jesus in our mind's eye, and when we, like you just sing, How Great Thou Art, and, and, we, and part of the song is we thank him. He's great because when I think of God sending his son, uh, we think of him in a, in, in a manger maybe, or then we jump to 30 years of age, and, and maybe your mind's eye, if you're older, is that picture your grandparents had 
of the shepherd carrying the little lamb on his shoulders. And you may tell your kids that story, you know, he broke his leg and he's teaching the sheep to trust him. Or maybe the picture you have in your mind's eye is of Jesus standing on a cliff, teaching people below, telling them of the love of God, or maybe breaking bread. Or for all of us, certainly we have the picture of Jesus on the cross. It's everywhere, from our jewelry to actually graphic pictures. That's how we picture Jesus, but it's really hard for us to picture Jesus as a preteen. A preteen. 12 years old, with all that comes with that. Hormones, yes. And look, I know, I know that we want to push back on that because Jesus was perfect. Jesus was sinless, but he was fully man. Fully man. We don't imagine him as a five-year-old boy who jumps and runs alongside the road throwing rocks as Mary moves about her small town doing daily chores, telling him not to throw rocks at other people. Well, Jesus wouldn't throw rocks at other people. Probably not, but you don't know that. Maybe he likes throwing rocks at people. <laughs> I'm kidding. The fact is he, he threw rocks. We don't picture Jesus sitting with his dad, or maybe you do, but it's hard for us to picture a seven-year-old Jesus sitting with his dad, Joseph, as Joseph tries to teach him about how you treat women or how you make, make a, I don't know, something plumb or how you avoid hitting your finger, how you clean a fish so that you don't get a bone in your throat. We don't picture that because it's hard to imagine God being young. I have no doubt that Moses, or Moses, Joseph, talked with his son about what it means to be a father and a husband. We can't picture it today because probably today's text is really the only story within the scriptures of Christ over the age of two, but under the age of 30. If you pay special attention to this story this morning, you're going to sense conflict. Conflict in Jesus. Because he's got conflict between his real father in heaven who has given him tasks to do and voluntary obedience, the Greek says, to his human parents as part of his tasks. You'll feel the conflict of his parents who forget or try to push off that that's not really their son. And don't, don't miss the complicated, confusing, and mysterious tasks that Mary and Joseph have raising God. That's in here too. If we're going to actually take an honest look at Jesus together this year, or in the next 22 years, however long, if we're going to take a look at him, then we've got to put away our preconceived idea that every message has to have a life-changing application. Some things are just to be taken in so that when we think of Jesus, we think of all of him. Because we have a sympathetic high priest that understands what it's like to be a 12-year-old boy who's not understood by his parents. And he understands also what it's like to being a disciple or a parent himself. Although he did not have children, he ministered to kids. He gets it. Luke 2, 41. Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. As you can see from the text, Jesus grew up in a devout Jewish family. They were not merely kind of Jewish. 
The fact that they went annually to the Passover festival in Jerusalem actually offers us some interesting information about his upbringing. It tells us uh, in the law that they were actually encouraged to go to Jerusalem three times a year for three different festivals. But if you couldn't afford it or if it wasn't possible for you to go, you were heavily encouraged if you were going to be a devout Jew to go at least once a year and especially to Passover. <clears throat> the festival of Passover was actually two festivals in one. It wasn't a one-day event as we often portray at Easter. It was an eight-day event. The first day was the Passover feast that you're familiar with, the Seder, with the next seven days being the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. To get to Jerusalem, both large and small groups of Jews, of communities actually, cities. Because I want you to understand that in the, in the, in the Jewish world at this time, there are four major regions where most of the Jews were living. Certainly some had left to do business outside of those areas, but there are basically four areas where Jews are heavily occupied and, and, and living. And one of those areas was Galilee, and within the region of Galilee, you have lots of little towns, and one of those little towns is Nazareth. It's believed that most of the people in Nazareth were pretty devout Jewish people. And so at Passover every year, the whole city, for the most part, would pack up and leave. They'd travel in heavy caravans together. They kept them safe on the roads. You know the dangers because you know the story of the Good Samaritan. And as they would travel together, history tells us that usually the women and children would travel in front and would set the pace walking. The men and the older children would walk right behind. Usually the men and the boys would walk behind the ladies, just you know, making sure that nobody got lost on the way. The older children those in the age of 10 to 12 would often run back and forth from dad to mom, men to women. You can picture it. From Nazareth, where, Jews, where Jesus grew up after returning from Egypt, it was a 65 mile an hour, or mile an hour, 65, it was very fast, a 65 mile trip from uh, to the south to Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph and Jesus, along with any other siblings that may have been with them at this point, we don't know that for sure, but it is reasonable to believe that Jesus by this point has brothers, maybe a sister. They take the trip annually, including the 12th year of his life. Verse 43. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among the other relatives that were there and their friends. And when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, I, I pause there not because that's an association to his resurrection. I, I, just because it's three doesn't mean that. But because that's how long it takes them to find little Yeshua, who is about to get his rear end beat pretty hard. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. Love the story. Take a breath. This is a great story. This is a great story about our Lord and Savior at 12 years of age. I mean, to be clear, I want you to understand that no matter what you see in ancient uh, pictures and stained glass, Mary did not live with a halo over her head. Okay? And in off times, when they aren't at the synagogue, she doesn't sit looking longingly at her 12-year-old son going, Ah, oh, there's God. That's not, that's not how this works. These were real people. And if you know Jewish communities, this is a real Jewish mom and all that comes with that. 
She spoke in a Brooklyn accent. She was tough as nails. And Joseph may have been the head of the family, but she was the neck that turned the head. I feel, and we've talked about this before, I think that one of the one of the sad things about the church and how we've divided ourselves so much is in an effort because of Catholicism and their praying to Mary and all, which, by the way, I'll explain a little more next week because in next week's story is the doctrine why they pray to Mary. But it's interesting, in, all, in, in, in Protestantism, we have so reacted to that that we don't give Mary the respect she deserves. We don't know a lot about Joseph, but that dude is the ultimate man. He's raising his stepson God. And it's just, we can't even picture it, try doing it. Their son is God. He was a normal Jewish guy who had enjoyed talking and walking with other fathers and men, like dudes do today. And yes, they probably lied to each other as they walked about how big the last fish was they caught, and how big the house was that he had built for some rich dude. As for Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the creator and sustainer of all that was and is and ever will be, well, he's 12. <laughs> you realize Hebrews 1 says that he created everything. You realize Corinthians says that nothing stays together without his word. That 12-year-old boy is God, and every bit a Jewish 12-year-old boy. Within a year, he'll have his bar mitzvah, and he'll be declared a man. Since he was almost 13, it's reasonable to think that Jesus was allowed room to run with his friends in the caravan as they walked back to Nazareth. And that's why they don't miss him for a day. Because it was not uncommon. And you know how the conversation went. Joseph, where's your son? Mary, calm down. He's almost 13. He's going to have a family in the next, you know, who knows how many years if that boy can ever have a family. Kind of self-centered. I know you're thinking, how could Jesus be self-centered? I didn't say he was imperfect, but they were imperfect. I mean, it, it, it's a family. Probably Mary's saying, keep an eye on Jesus as we travel back. And Joseph went, yeah, whatever. I got bigger things to do, like talking with my other buddies. We don't get time off very often. They didn't miss him because he was hanging out with his friends and he was running around just like kids do. I'm certain as they walked that day from Jerusalem, Mary thought that Jesus with jo was with Joseph and his boy and the other boys, and Joseph, well, he didn't really think about it. <laughs> Isn't that what we men do? It's okay to laugh. Women aren't perfect. Men aren't perfect. The first day of the journey home was done, and it was evening, and they were tired. And I don't know if they were getting ready for dinner or getting ready to put the tent up for sleep. I, I don't know. Maybe it was time to feed the donkey that was carrying their stuff. But we're told that at that point, they realized that Jesus is nowhere to be found. And so you get the sense that the rest of that evening, they spend looking for him among the camp and the caravan, and there's nobody there. Mary panics. It tells us, it uses the word frantic a little later. And the Greek word for frantic here actually means frantic. After an evening of searching, Mary and Joseph retrace, and I want you to think about this, they retrace the caravan steps, every one of them. And you know exactly what Mary and Joseph are worried about because you've lost your kid in a grocery store. I'm not going to say her name, but my wife once locked my kid inside the car 
I'm sorry. I just, that's the first time in 31 years I've revealed a, a bad moment. Beyond that, she's perfect. But this was in Ohio. But there's something inside that happens, you know. Everything that's supposed to be here drops down to here. Well, on the way back, I think it is reasonable to believe that they looked at every step that that caravan took on both sides of the highway that they traveled on. And you know what they were looking for, right? Bloody feet, bloody signs, blood at all, a coat, a garment. Because that's not just God, that's their kid. And the truth is, for 12 years, at least as long as they're back from Egypt, they've been able to pretend, for the most part, that that's Joseph's son. I mean, you go on with life. How do I know that? Because I've tried to pretend for 21 years or 20 years that my son isn't a diabetic. If you wake up every morning thinking about the scary stuff, you will end up in me medicated and in a hospital somewhere. So you try to live with what is, and that is not just God. So the fact that he could be dead somewhere or beaten severely is a very real story. If you read any of the Jewish texts or the Roman texts, you'll find that these roads were extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous. A full day's trip back. They lost Jesus one day. They don't realize he's gone until the night. The whole next day, they're walking back to Jerusalem. And fortunately, by the time they get there, or unfortunately, it doesn't really matter at this point to Mary or Joseph, by the time they get there, they haven't found him. Still panicked. It's on the third day that they actually go into the temple and find the weirdest thing they ever imagined, the last thing they imagined, the one thing they couldn't imagine. Jesus is talking with the best of the best. Again, to give you some context, Passover is the ultimate festival, right? You know that. It's the ultimate festival. It's the one festival you can't miss if you're any kind of serious Jew. And because of that, rabbis from all over the regions, all four regions would come to Jerusalem. And they would spend not over only Passover, but they would spend the feast, the, 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 the unleavened bread feast. They would be there. And so if you wanted to learn something, not just from your rabbi, but from the Pharisees that oversaw the rabbis, if you wanted to learn what the smartest and the best were talking about, that's where you wanted to be. And Jesus is sitting among them asking questions and listening. I, I, I'm going to reiterate this, asking questions and listening, because when I was growing up, and that, look, there's tension here, there's theological tension. It is hard for us to imagine that Jesus would be asking questions, except we kind of accept, accept it because when Jesus does his ministry, his questions are rabbinical. You're, you're going to hear that again in a few moments. Rabbinical questions are questions that are not intended to get an answer, but more to make you think. Uh, discipleship is the um, modus operandi of Christendom and Judaism. Uh, in Sunday school and in Western thought, we tell you three points to everything. We teach you what to think. In rabbinical teaching in Judaism, they taught you how to think. And they did that by asking questions that drove you nuts. That explains Jesus' parables. Because those who really wanted to know would ask more questions and more questions and would seek and look and and, and drill their rabbi. Those who were not really interested and got fed up would leave, and that separated those who would be the disciples of a rabbi and those, those who would not. So Jesus is in the tabernacle, and, they're ask, and he's asking them questions, not rabbinical ones, children's questions, and they're answering. In both Luke 2.40, and I'm going to tell you something here that you've got to have to think about, and it may freak you out, but you've got to take it in. You've got to just think. But in both Luke 2.40 and in verse 52 of chapter 2, the scriptures tell us that Jesus grew in wisdom. Excuse me. 
I thought you taught last month that Jesus was omniscient. Yes, he is. So how can he grow in wisdom? I don't know. I can tell you that he did not come out of the manger knowing everything. It's an incredible thing, but there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. And it's part of the miraculous story that is Jesus at 12 years of age and at 5 years of age and at 20 years of age. This shouldn't shock us because we all know the story where they're drilling Jesus on, on when he's coming back and his response is, I don't know the time or the seasons, my father only knows. And we all kind of go, that's weird, move on. But in God's humanity and in his voluntary submitting himself, the omniscient one actually doesn't know everything. I don't know. How do you got a trinity, three and one, and only two-thirds actually keep their omniscience for a moment? I don't know. But that is the amazing thing about this story. Why would God even do that? And the answer is because he loves you. Why would God put himself as a 12-year-old boy, submission, submissive to a fallen mom and stepdad. I want those of you who grew up in a divorced home to think about your stepdad for a minute. Even if you liked him, it's hard to submit to a man that isn't your birth dad, especially when you're 12 and 13. Because when you're 12 and 13, you're pretty darn sure you've got all the answers to life. Again, Jesus didn't sin. But he's a 12-year-old boy. And Hebrews tells us that he's tempted in every way that we are. You see, we, we're comfortable with Jesus on the cross. We're comfortable with him at the Last Supper. We're comfortable with him even in the manger because it's a silent night. But we don't know what to do with Jesus the human. And that's part of the reason we can't go to him. Because we don't think he gets it. We don't think. We want him to show mercy to us from on high on the throne, and what we don't understand is he understands your struggle. And this is part of that. I can't explain how an omniscient God doesn't know everything, but I do know that it tells us that he grew in wisdom, and I think, and this is Mark's thinking, I think that when he's sitting there with the best of the best of his day, I think he's asking him questions about the coming Messiah, because that's what they talked about. Now here's the interesting thing. It tells us that they were that we know, and we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, their teachings on the Messiah was that he was going to be the new Moses, and he was going to come, and he was going to overthrow the Roman government, and he was going to lead them like Moses did into the promised land. Well, I think that's where Jesus' questions come in, Mark. Because Jesus also asked questions. And I bet his questions were about, what does Isaiah mean when it says that he will be like a lamb led to a slaughter? What does it mean that he would take on us the iniquities of them all? And it tells us in the text, verse 47, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. Remember I talked about the rabbinical questions? It is reasonable to believe that they were not trying to teach Jesus, the Pharisees and the rabbis, but what they're trying to, they were not being instructed by him, but they were actually trying to teach this young man who showed great potential. That's how you decided who was going to be a Pharisee and a rabbi, is if they showed great potential, you would choose them, they would respond positively or negatively, and then you would take them into your flock, and they would follow. You would say, come follow me. Remember that with Jesus? We'll get there soon. We'll talk about what a rabbi did. But they would follow him. And as they walked, the rabbi would teach things. 
Well, they're sitting in the tabernacle, and this 12-year-old almost man comes and starts asking them questions, and they respond by talking about the Scriptures and responding by the way rabbis respond, by asking him questions. But here's the funny thing. Every time Jesus asks the disciples questions and their response is, I don't know, Jesus had an answer. Jesus probably opened the scriptures and asked them questions back. But one, and we don't know exactly what that conversation was, but we know that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The Greek word for amazed here could have been translated beside themselves in amazement. They were blown away. Jesus was listening to them, asking questions of them, probably about Old Testament prophecies, and he was interacting with them, and his answers to their rabbinical questions blew their minds. Whatever they were discussing, though, they were amazed by him. And it wasn't just the people in the tabernacle that day. I want you to picture Mary and Joseph running in. They're, they're tired, so they're probably not running, but they're walking in. They couldn't find Jesus' dead or alive body or beaten body anywhere, but they walk into the tabernacle, and they see him, and Luke 2, or temple, Luke 2, 48, at the beginning says, his parents didn't know what to think. I bet they didn't. I'm sure. The Greek text, the Greek says they were astonished. Actually, it would be awkward, but it could have been translated, they were knocked off their feet in confused astonishment. So they walk in. There's nowhere else to look, Joseph. Where should we go? Well, let's go back to the temple. Let's try there. Maybe he's in the temple. Maybe he's gotten hurt and they're taking care of him. So we'll go in. We'll find the rabbis. We'll ask them if they've seen our little boy. And they walk in, and there's Jesus sitting among these these best of the best leaders, and he's asking, and they're talking, and he's healthy, and there's no blood, and there's no battered, and there's no, there's no nurse around him. There's just conversation going on, and they didn't know what to think. What's up with that? They were astonished. Why are they, why, why is he talking to them? Oh, no, they know us. They know our family. We're from Nazareth. This is not good. They already look down on us. They don't know what to think. Most days, Jesus acted like a boy who was almost a man, but this day, he looked and acted like something else. And immediately, they recognized that they didn't recognize him. And confused and astonished by this, they didn't know what to think. But not enough to be silenced as a Jewish mom. Because there's one thing that overwhelms confusion, and that is anger and relief. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching everywhere for you. Some of the other translations say, how could you do this to your father and I? Yeah, that's, that's the most real question in all of Scripture. The problem is Jesus likes to answer questions. And when you're raising God, that's a problem. Because she wasn't really asking, taking a survey and she didn't expect him to say, how could you answer, well, mother, I was. That's, that's not what she expected. She expected him to get up as a 12-year-old boy, run to her and say, I got scared. I didn't know what else to do, so I came in here, and we've been talking, and it's okay, and I didn't know this about this about mommy, and I was dead. He, he didn't do that. I thought that was pretty good acting on my part. You should clap when things like that happen. It's just. I, I love this story because I really want you to picture your 12-year-old boy when you say, how could you do this to your father and I? There's a look in a... T Texas women, you are scary. 
Multiply that by 500 and you get a Jewish mom. And Jesus looks at her and he says, verse 49, why did you need to search? He asked, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? (laughs) I'm going to knock that smile off your face, boy. Throughout the Gospels, there are at least four I must statements that Jesus makes. Did you know that? In Luke 4.43, Jesus says, I must preach. In Luke 9.22, he says, I must suffer. In John 3.14, he says, I must be lifted up. And here in Luke 2, he says, I must be in my Father's house. (laughs) Despite needing to grow in wisdom, and if you text me, I'm going to send you to Jeff because I don't get this stuff. This is a perplexing story. Remember at the beginning I said you're going to feel the tension in this whole story? Well, here's a moment of tension. Despite needing to grow in wisdom, despite being an almost man, despite being a normal preteen Jewish boy, Jesus obviously knew who his father was and he knew where he was supposed to be. I don't get it. Don't ask your Bible study leader. That's this morning's discussion. How how much did he know? I mean, in one sense, he's a boy and he's got to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man like a normal child. And another, all of a sudden, he knows. And Luke 2.50 tells us that Mary and Joseph, on the other hand, well, verse 50, look at it. Joseph, I like to beat him to death, but I'm not sure that's a good idea. I think he means this. Do you remember where it keeps saying that Mary held all these things in her heart? It's going to say it again in a moment here. But we always think silent night, holy night, green and red, Christmas. We always, we always think warm, fuzzy thoughts. But I think there's another side to that, and that's that, oh, crap, that is God. I mean, I'm guessing that this is not just the, fir- the, the last time, but maybe the first time. Of many times where Mary wishes that her firstborn son would just stay home and be her boy, not God's son. I imagine that it was probably at that moment that she remembered that the son she had birthed in a manger wasn't Joseph's son, no matter how much they acted like it was and tried to pretend it. He wasn't just a carpenter in training about to take on the family business. He was God's anointed one the angels had talked to her about before he was even born or she grew in her belly. This 12-year-old boy that had her smile was the one that the shepherds came and told her some wild stories about angels declaring that he had been born and lain in a manger and he's a savior. This one that she was looking at at 12 years of age, sitting in front of rabbis and around Pharisees, is actually the savior that the magi, 10 years before, had come and laid prostrate in front of and actually handed him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Even if she and and Joseph had a clue what Jesus meant by his statement that I must be in my father's house, this Her firstborn son that she was frantically searching for was on a mission given a task by his real father that he must, that he would accomplish, even if she didn't understand it, even if she had forgotten about it, even if she didn't know the ramifications on her life, even if it scared her, he would accomplish that that because that's why he came. There's a natural question that arrives from each mother in this room or watching on the internet, and that is, he's kind of disrespectful to his mom. Isn't that a sin? which is why Luke writes in the very next verse, 51, then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, and his mother stored all these things in her heart. In other words, Luke wants us to know that he didn't cross a disobedient line. He wasn't being sarcastic. He was answering honestly. 
And in fact, he could have stayed. I'd like to make the case that he, he could have stayed in the tabern or temple because that was his father's house. I mean, Jesus had a problem. He has to voluntarily submit to fallen humans that not only don't get his mission, but really don't care about his mission as much as they care about how they feel about his mission. This is going to be a problem of his this whole time. I will point out to you where his brothers and family mock him in his mission and taunt him because they're not followers. And I'll even make a case a couple times that Mary starts questioning his sanity. Despite knowing and seeing these miraculous things that happen in birth. I mean, the truth is that not only does Jesus submit to his Father's will, we're going to see that over and over again, but he submits to fallen human parents. That's why he goes with them back to Nazareth. He could have actually stayed there. In fact, I want to remind you that they're just a few short feet away from the Holy of Holies that is still containing the Ark of the Covenant at this time, which, by the way, is the throne room of the Holy Spirit, which tells you that that's his favorite place on this earth. Why? Because he sat there for a long time. You see, Jesus had visited the earth before, but not as an infant or a human, but as God. You'll remember some of those stories. One is he visits with Abraham and he eventually saves Lot. Over and over again, you have what are called Christophanies, Jesus coming onto the earth. This isn't the first time. This is the first time he says, I'm going to do not only my father's will, but my mother's. And by the way, you'll get that again next week as Jesus turns water into wine before his time. What a weird life he lived. You see, there's tension. Not only is he here to accomplish his father's mission, but he's here also to, to be, uh, the Greek says, voluntary submissive or voluntarily obedient. That's what verse 51 says in the Greek to that. Like a private submits to his lieutenant, Jesus is submitting to his parents. Even if he knows better, he's submitting to them. Jesus had every right as God's son to stay in his father's house, the temple, but he chooses to go with them because that was the plan. I know that we think that the plan is awesome when he dies. I know that we think the plan is awesome when he rises again. I know we think the plan is awesome when he's born in a manger, but I want you to know that this is even more awesome, like the 30 years we know nothing about or the 28 years we know nothing about. Every day of that life, as he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men, every day of that life he knew he would die. I think at some point he becomes aware of it, I don't know when he becomes aware of it, but I do know that he is fully aware for most of that time that he is God and, and actually created them, and they could cease to exist if he thinks it, but he doesn't. He submits himself to the plan. And that is because Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest that not only has mercy on us, but actually relates to the pain of our lives. And because of that, he was willing to submit himself to all this weirdness, and it's weird, and it actually creates more questions than it answers. And Mary is watching this, and she looks in her boy's eyes the, only, the, the way only a mother can, and she realizes the conflict within it which, uh, that is within this God-child of hers. And it says once again that she stored all these things in her heart. And I'm not sure she's going, isn't this a wonderful day? I think she's going, this is the beginning of a really weird life. This is crazy. How, how am I supposed to deal with this? How is he? And then this text ends with Luke 2.52. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and people. Jesus was liked by people. Tells us he's friendly, respectful, 
He pleased the Father in heaven. He grew up healthy, strong, and wise. And what I know is that all the people in this story are part of God's plan, his story for your adoption. Because at 12 years of age, he's just as much as a Messiah as at 33 when he dies. And the reason, and here, here's what I really want you to think about this morning, the reason he plays this out at 12 years of age and doesn't float down on a cloud at 29 and spend three years ministering, the reason he plays this out is because he loves you. He really does. If you've been here on Wednesday night, you have heard me talk a lot about that God's passion, his primary passion, is his plan. His plan, however, is to redeem you. That's his plan. And it brings him joy. And at 12 years of age, Jesus voluntarily submitting to fallen parents and going through all the confusion and frustration that he has is simply because he knows that in a few in a another dozen years, he will die on the cross for you. For you. Because he wants you to be his kid. Why does this matter? Because Jesus just wasn't a 30-year-old Savior, and he wasn't just a baby in a manger. He was a real human who dealt with real things. And there's not a thought you've had or a feeling you've had or even a temptation you have that he hasn't felt some, some semblance of. We know that from Hebrews. And you can go to him right now and he'll get it. If you're a parent scared of raising your 12-year-old, first of all, I just want to tell you something. We really didn't have the terrible twos, and we didn't have, don't believe the people that are teasing you. We loved raising our kids. The real bad news for us is it's harder to raise them as adults than kids. Not that they're harder to raise. I, I have two wonderful children, but that, it, that, the, that the risks are much greater. They make decisions they get to make, and... You know, when they're 10 and they're disobedient, you can swat them on the rear end. Uh, in case you work for social services, I mean that figuratively, not literally. But you can redirect them. You can talk with them, and they will, if you talk sternly enough and, and you have a love relationship, they'll weep, and then they'll ask forgiveness, and you'll work it out. But when they're 22, they get to make life-changing decisions that you may think are good or bad, and you don't get to, you can give wisdom, but the truth is you got to let them go, and that's really scary. Mary's going to struggle with that. We'll see that later. But Jesus gets it because he asked Mary to do that for you. He asked Mary to give up the rights to control her life for you. To play a role in a play that would be the, the acting out of your salvation. And he played the role of a Jewish boy for you. And yes, the death on the cross is awesome. I can't take anything away from that. It is where our salvation is purchased by. If you can slow your brain down long enough, you realize how much it cost him. 33 years of submitting to that Jewish woman who says, how can you do this to your father and I? Well, excuse me, but 10,000 years before you were even thought of, I was ruling all of it. That's what I would have said. What Jesus says is, hey, Luke, I want you to make sure that they understand that despite the conflict, I still obey you. He did that. So that in 2019, we could gather here in East Texas and celebrate redemption and forgiveness and grace. And that I could remind you from John 1, or 1 John 2, 6, 
know that you can read. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And there's a lot of you here today, most of us, who don't like some of those relationships that God has placed us within, our mission field, your boss, your spouse, the demon-possessed child that you are trying to raise, uh, the difficulties. What do you want me to do, God? I want you to do what I did. To do that, you've got to know him. To know him, you've got to be in the word. Within its context. Because the truth is, without this, you and I are bound for hell. This is part of the prophesied plan. That he would come and live among us, Emmanuel, God with us. He'd walk among us. And every piece of his life would proclaim how badly and deeply he is committed to his Father's plan to redeem you and I. Even if it means he has to obey a stepdad and a confused mom. What are you willing to give up for him? So that someone else might be saved. So that somebody else's kids might learn about God. He serves. Are you? Are we? Let's close in prayer. Father, make us like you. Amen. Bible study is going to start in about 10 minutes, and you are going to discuss things that there are probably not many answers for.